Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Okay, can I just say something? <laughs> we have a conversation, yeah. but I'm not going to look at you. I look at them. Do it. Okay, yeah. that's it. You're in charge, Marina. I think we all know you're in charge. Um, okay, one question I want to ask the, um, the House is how many people went to 512 hours in the House? No. So a, 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 quite a vast majority. Wonderful. Okay, well, I think then it makes most sense to start the conversation with that, Marina. Mm. Um, and the first question has got to be, how, how, how are you feeling? <clears throat> this is beside the point. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's much more important what we achieved with that, I think. Um, what is the second question? That's <laughs> not what you said backstage, by the way. <laughs> oh, Will, I'm knackered, I'm knackered. Um, the second question is, why? Why that idea, and why that idea for London? All right, so I think it's really wonderful that so many people here been in 512 hours, because as we know, we didn't talk there, and everybody had headphones to block the sound. So somehow I feel I own you so many you know, explanations and what, how this idea came from and why. And it's a really long process. Uh, it's very interesting now that I hope everybody can come I am here also in London, not just for this talk, but also because I'm opening the show in Listen Gallery, which is opening on 16, um, the September, just now. And um, in this show, it's interesting how it's curated because they really felt the people, the, there was the, the Klaus uh, Rogenberg and uh, the Sidney Russell and with Nicholas Logsdal in collaboration, that it's very important to show my early work, something which from 69 to 75, before I left Yugoslavia, before mm. everything had happened, that already in these early works, I have a kind of glimpse and the, the line which brings me to the Serpentine Gallery. Even at that time, you know, in the young artist, you're doing things, you're doing things intuitively and you don't even know why you're doing it, but you have this sort of strange and very strong urge of doing it. And there already I had this uh, need to do something called freeing the horizon, freeing the space, freeing the memory, freeing the body, freeing everything, you know, and just get into the white space. 
and this, this listed gallery show is called the white space. And if you see the serpentine is direct link to that. Uh, in, uh, you know, and then comes all the, you know, the series of, of my, of course, my life and the performances, which I was really interested in reduction. How mm-hmm. you can create performance from the less elements as possible. Of course, when you're young, you need props, you need this, you need that, you need some kind of support material to, to cover your insecurity. But then, the soon, the more you, you start understanding the potential energy every human being having himself, that actually you don't need anything. You just, magic happened with nothing, just from being there and just radiating that energy itself. And, you know, it's uh, I done very similar work, but, again, very different in Artists is Present, when I just observe people, you know, in, in the front of me. But that work physically was very demanding and very difficult because I didn't move for a very long period of time. So my legs were swallowing, my body was not functioning, and physically was hell. But here, and then, but maximum amount of people I could look at the day was maybe 12, because they say five, six, you know, three, four hours, so I didn't look more. But here we have sometimes 1,200, 900, 700 people per day, which I interacting as much as I can. Mm. And this was incredibly emotional, you know, the, the investment and demanding. And it was like you're really entering in some kind of parallel reality, which is nothing to do with the, with, with the normal life. That performance become actually the life itself, because by 512 hours, I didn't walk on the streets of, of, of London. I just been in the in the serpentine and in the in my flat and back to serpentine. Marie, that was it. Did, did it during those five hundred and twelve hours? Did I mean I was staggered when I went in. I went in three or four times during the, the course of the exhibition. I was just staggered as far as I could see that everybody complied. Everybody, I suppose. You, you, I suppose you could put it very positively and sort of, sort of joined in the spirit yeah. of what you were trying to do. That people were slow walking. People were in the middle looking up. Um, in, the, in this sort of this central zone, and then people were in the beds. Did anybody, or did you encounter many people who were uninterested and, and unbelieving and unwilling to connect with you? But I think the, the, the process was very slowly. In the beginning, everybody was very shy and didn't understand what the hell is happening here. But somehow, word of mouth and the people coming back create this kind of energy support. So mm. the people, there was people coming almost every day. And, and then, you know, they become the, actually the part of the old piece. And they will in, in instruct or talk to the, tell the story to the others. So everything becomes so smooth and, and incredibly, um, how you call it, the, the organic. So, you know, the last months was incredible. Everybody knew the moment he arrived what to do. Mm. You, 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 I almost felt I was not needed. So that I start doing these things that I become one of them and be, the blend in that I will do the same exercise like everybody else. And this was really important. But in, in the beginning, it was really hard. The one thing is like really unbelievably um, surprising to the, the middle-aged British gentleman when I come and take Not his me. hand. No. And take, <laughs> take his hand. And he's just like, you know, reaction yeah. is like, what the hell you're doing? And, you know, what you want? <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, once you, you, you build this trust... They just give you hand, and it's so wonderful. And they give you, and they actually want you to do this. And I think that that one of the success of this piece is that we all need it. We all need to to don't have telephones. We all need to have not look at the watches. We all need to don't hear the sounds and to be with ourselves. But then I have let me tell you that one of my favorite example. So this was one guy. I uh, I just want to help his hand, and he said nobody going to touch me. 
don't touch me. So he ran out into this uh, little you know, locker room and we drink the water. So I ran after him and I said, I'm just curious, what is your profession? I'm psychoanalyst. I said, <laughs> I, said I will never go to you. <laughs> this is the last thing. But then, you know, then we sit and drink water and I explain him everything. And then he went back and done everything. And then he came back again. But then, okay, this was a good example. There was another example. I have the hand, you know, another guy, and he literally, not only they didn't say anything, he ran to the water room. He ran to get his stuff out of the locker. And I ran after him again, you know, to try to understand what is happening. The man ran out of the gallery in a straight line through the park, through the trees, through the... It's like you see pure devil. It was incredible. I could not leave the gallery, so I could not do anything. And in my, the, really the, the most difficult example for me was this, um, there was a woman come with the, with the husband and, um, and the son, and it was incredible. I never saw so much hate and so much, I, I, you know, she was like, 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 in a way aggressive, ag- aggressive, and she said, this is ridiculous, what's this bullshit, why are these people doing these things? And I say, if we go to the you know, water room, I can explain to you. He said, I don't want the explanation. I don't know anything for you. I think this is just nonsense. So she went to, the, she went to this uh, locker room, and husband and uh, son stayed because they wanted to experience. And I went with, to her because I wanted to, you know, to really, it's not to put her on my side, but explain. I at least have the, the, at least the need or the freedom to tell her my point of story before she, as she is also free to, to don't like it. That's all fine. But she was hateful. She was so hateful, and I was so unprepared to, to get all that hate on me that I started crying like crazy. I could not stop myself. I was like, I was so hurt because I come there with such an open heart and was like, wow, straight hate. And you know, I could not believe how vulnerable I was. And then she said to me, you're not impressing me with tears. This is just horrible. Just let me alone. And, and she left, and God. I, I, and then I actually started being more careful. I, when I see the people who are not who are kind of unwilling, unwilling, I let them go. And what happened then, if you don't go to them and you don't do anything, they just see the rest of the people, which energy is so positive and so kind of changing the space, that after a while I look at them and they're still there, and after a while I look at them and they're doing everything without me telling anything. So it's like functioning by itself. Were you fearful when you came up with this idea, which was bold, the idea of basically doing nothing, although in, in the end you, you've constructed some rooms, but basically it was just you in a, in a white-walled gallery. Were you worried that the majority of the audience would react like that lady? You know, it was a huge risk. First of all, I have to give up. I have to tell the, the, the Serpentine Gallery, it was amazing. The, to just, you know, when I told them, because we planned this show for so long, and we have a list of the walls we're going to show, and the objects we're going to show, and video installations, and so on. And then I, I was kind of not happy, because I didn't want to have in my curriculum another line in my biography, another museum show. Because, you know, when you have them, why, why you, you have so little time left. You have to do something radical, different, and to be curious, to, to experiment. And if you experiment, you can fail. And what... And and failing is part of the whole process. So I called, you know, the, or just in January, I came back from Brazil to, to Hans Ulrich Hobbist and, and Julia Payton Jones, and I said to them, you know, I really have this new idea. I hope you will like it. And she said, what's the idea? I said, nothing at all. We don't show anything. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't question. I mean, if you ask this, any museum in the world, let's say Tate, I don't think they will do it, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but but they will, I can't believe, you know, they say, let's, let's go for it. Let's go for it. And, you know, 
you're doing, you're here in a city whose art is such a commodity. I mean, we are talking about the city of Damien Hirst, which is, we are talking about diamond skulls. We are talking about young artists who are making whatever things from the Hermes, uh, Hermes leather the, with the golden eggs, whatever. Everything is so expensive. And I say, okay, let's have IKEA chairs. That's really cheap. And then some camping beds, you know. Yeah. And then headphones. The beds were crummy. Literally, this yeah. show, I mean, the, 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 we just use the props who are just for use, but I mean, there, is, there was no, no material cost to make them, you know, in, in a special way. And then the, really the most important the expenses was for that show, it was really to put up a human resource, you know, that we need, we need 46 people, you know, because they, nobody can stay helpers. as long as I, helpers, yeah. but they have to be trained. And I work with Lindsay Weisinger, which is a really wonderful uh, person. We work in many different projects together, which she train these people. And the people have to be trained how to approach people, how not to, how to understand energy, how they can feel situation, because it's so incredibly, uh, you know, the, mm. the, the, the fragile, the old, old, old thing. And, and to not, and to not just, you know, be ridiculous. And, and it's amazing. It's not. I can't believe. This is a, this is a trick. I know you're going to hate this question, Marina, but I want to ask it to you anyway. Is, is, is in that sort of situation, I mean, you're in such a vulnerable and powerful position. Um, and then people do respond. And that must feel kind of amazing. Do you, at that moment, do you feel that this, you are an artist and this is an artwork? Or does it feel something other than that? Does it feel like, in a way, you're, you're a, 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 you know, a, a spiritual person, um, you know, communicating something other? You know, during this show, honestly, I've been asking myself, I don't even know if I can call this art. I don't know what it is. I still don't know. I think that we create something energetically that I need so much more time to understand what really happened there. Because it's, you know, the, this kind of show, you can't be made without public. Public complete the work. All of you who've been there together actually make this work possible. And, and this is something, we, we kind of create another energetic uh, mm. the, 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 the field, mm. which was evident. I mean, people, you know, at the end of the day, everybody would come and stand around the platform or on the platform. And when you see that kind of luminosity on their faces and close eyes and really deep experience, which you can't deny. And we are in the middle of, New, of London, which is so full of destruction and noise and everything else. And this miracle happened. I, I, you know, I think that definitely spiritual element, but in the same time, it's not just that. It's so much more complex. It's also reflecting our tiredness of consumption, of being junky consumptions, of goods, of time, mm. of rushing, of telephone, of messages, of computers. We have enough of this, and and I was just able to give them the, that that island of absence of that thing. And, and how do you how do you feel? I mean, you know, we can see how other people feel, but what is it? How does, it, how does it affect you and your own perception of yourself? Do you, do, you, do you feel that you're some sort of spiritual leader, I guess, in that position? I feel changed. You know, in my life, it's not life changed me. It's my work changed me. Because in my life, I always like to take easy ways, and I'm not interested in, you know, suffering. But then I put this huge, you know, condition to the work. I have to do this and do this amount of hours. I have to walk the Chinese wall takes eight years. I have to, you know... Mm. And that process and, and then in execution of the work really changed me because I never give up. I, I can't give up. I, when you say no to me, it's just the beginning. I never, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I see through this work I'm different. The one most important thing happened to me is, um, 
oh, I have to share with you that because it's just, you know, it's only 12 days how, mm. how this finished. And, you know, I went back to home and I come back now and I can't believe I'm here today. I just, you know, it came this morning. So, which I can say that, you know, I wanted to create this legacy, which was Institute of Immaterial Art. And uh, I'm working with Ram House, and we have the building, and we have to, you know, make this all this money to, to build this building, and, and we got Kickstarter running. And, and I'm just looking to this whole thing, and, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, after this piece, why I need building? Why I need to pay architects all this money? Why I have to do this? Because... It's, we can do it with nothing. Mm. We can create really immaterial structure who, is, who can be anywhere, anytime available to anybody of us. And that's so much more stronger, which we don't need to kind of have that building who becomes such a weight. It's, it's become something that you have to carry and to take care of it. But this Serpentine show showed me that, you know, we can do everything with IKEA chairs, headphones, and, 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 and some rice and lentils. So basically, if anybody wants to buy a really large warehouse building in upstate New York, Marina's selling hers. By the <laughs> I didn't announce, but more or less. <laughs> and, and, and giving all the Kickstarters money back, too. Yeah, it's interesting. Because that's a, that's trying a, that, something else. That's a big turnaround. I mean, you were committed to that. As you say, Rem Coolhouse has done some designs for it. This was going to be... And, a faci- and I spent so much money myself putting into this whole thing. Yeah, you know? facility. But then, you know, what... And this, this Serpentine show suddenly showed you that this was... No. We don't need anything. That's the whole thing, that we don't need anything. That actually being it's, is, is the highest form of existence. We don't need anything. Mm. And I think that you know, the people who really came there a few times or even once, that could feel that energy that they can access to if, in their own way, that we, we can you know, create an immaterial platform that we can function in many ways. You know? with, the, with that Serpentine show, the, you started off with the idea of doing nothing. And yeah. then you ended up with three quite distinct gallery spaces. Well, before that, you ended up with people had to wear headphones. Headphones uh, is always a must. Yes. <laughs> we'll understand that in a minute. And then the fact that then there were three very distinct spaces in which people were invited to act and react in, in certain ways. Why, why the headphones and why those three distinct actions? First of all, the Serpentine have three spaces that you have to deal with. Mm. And uh, by the way, just a small detail. After I finished the show, <laughs> Julia Payton Jones gave me a present, and I could not believe. And she gave me a key of Serpentine Gallery. And I was thinking they're fake, so I went to try them. No, they're real. <laughs> and then I was thinking, oh my God, now we have, the, we, we have a little condominium <laughs> in the park. Good location. <laughs> no, the, what, you know. So there are three spaces. So how we, you have to really deal with architecture. Well, so the first thing, you enter, and locals are essential, that you leave your possessions. When you put the sound, when you put the headphones to block the sound, I love the Japanese. The Japanese, they always put the headphones and they say, doesn't work. I say, exactly, doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> they, they say, this is not, you know, they, they're, always, they're always coming sound, something out of these headphones, but this is an absence of sound. So you put the headphones, and every single person that put the headphones, you create a certain zone. You're mm. in different it's condition. And then, you know, there are all the different, which is incredible how it's orchestrated the public, because you have the ones who are just coming and observing. 
But then soon they want to experiment. Then they become observant. Experiment. The newcomers, they observe. Then the observant become, you know, the ones who are viewing again. So there is a constant changing the 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 the, the, the function of being observed and 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 uh, and perform in the same time. So we are all in this on the same, mm. you know, on this on the same level. And then you know the middle space. It's, it was evident for me because of architectural construction, the cupola and everything that we create this platform, and uh, and this platform was we just put in this certain shape. And then three days later came this woman from, from where she came from, from Peru. And she had this golden necklace, exactly in the same shape. And she said, oh, but this is from whatever Indians, very old symbol. I, I, it just happened, coincidence, that we have the kind of archetype images that that was exactly shape in the middle. And then, so that always stayed there. And, and was we, this like a decompression zone? Was that your idea? This is where people set themselves up and just got into the mood and the spirit of the piece? But in the beginning, we changed also the central place many times to refine out that only energetically work if the people just stand with closed eyes in the middle uh-huh. and support each other energy. Because when you close your eyes, oh, I just tell you, I love this story, that the shepherd, by shepherd story from Sardinia. I, I, it was in Sardinia, the shepherd, and every time I talked to him in the middle of the mountain, he closed his eyes. And every time he answered the question, I asked him again, he closed the eyes and answered the question. I said, but why always close your eyes? He said, but if I, if you, if I talk, I don't need to see. And it was so logical to me. So then, you know, if the moment you don't hear and you have closed eyes, you have two senses closed. So that everything else becomes much stronger. So that your sense of the feeling of energy of other people, feeling your own energy, and constitute yourself. It's incredible. People can start feeling blood, you know, the, 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 the stream or the heart beating that yeah. normally never hear this kind of sound. So this was the place of that kind of concentration. Left and right rooms are changing all the time. Sometimes blindfolded, sometimes it's slow walking. Slow walking is a very important exercise. Because? It's because, see, slow, you know, first is active exercise, but at the same time is really about... Um, uh, creating the certain uh, state of mind, because when you're walking normally, y- you know you can walk slowly, easily, but your mind is like Ferrari, like a speed car, is going on and on and on. But if you make repetition of the same gesture and walking very slowly, your body getting same amount of oxygen for a long period of time. That amount of oxygen, slow thinking process, and then you actually your sl- slow motion and thinking process become the same. And that's a really incredible state of quietness that you would achieve. But you have to do repetition. And that, that's, you know, that's knowledge you're displaying there about the human body and how, how we work. When... But I don't need to tell anybody. If, if you just follow instructions and walk this room seven times, ten times, people... There was a great writer who come there every day, walk three, three hours the room and go right because he just used serpentine like his own spiritual brain gym mm. or, 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 or the, you know, brain spa, whatever. And because when you do that repetition, you get through this knowledge automatically. So, you know, we always read the books and we always, you know, read the books, but we're not experiencing. Yeah. The idea is to experience. So it's, it's one thing I'm telling you and then you observe and that's, you don't know anything about. But if you're doing it, you're not just observer, but you actually doer. You are part of this process. Then you get it. And the bedroom? And the bedroom is another thing. You are alone but with everybody else, uh-huh. which is very spe- spe- specific experience. And, uh, and then again, you know, you, you, you close your eyes, you have headphones, you're in this very tranquil position, but somehow supported by other energy to get to that it tranquil It reminded state. me of a hospital. 
Oh, hospital is great. I love, you know, I, I always like, you, you remember in our interview, I think they tell you the three, three of my favorite institutions is prison, sanatorium, and the monastery. And because everything is very regular about, you know, physical experience and the mind can wander. But, you know, there is some bad sides. Monastery, no, this hospital is not good because you're sick. Prison is because it's no free will. But monastery is pretty good. Or now we create the gallery space like that. Yeah, yeah. Marina told me a joke about monasteries before we came on. Which, no, we don't go. go into this. Um, <laughs> it's really bad. It's a Vatican <laughs> joke. I love it. But, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, but if you tell it... No way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and, and, and then, 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 before we just ask, ask the audience to, ask, to, to explore the, 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 this, this work as well, one, one last question is, is, what did you hope, expect, envisage people to take from this work? You know, I, I have this very utopia, you know, desire. I always think that the only way to change the world is to change consciousness. And to change consciousness is on personal level. And it's so easy to criticize things how they are. I mean, look at it, just open television and it's a hell. But, and there is always, you know, criticize from outside. But what we can do on personal level, and to me, this whole thing with the, with the serpentine is, is just a kind of possibility to use some tools I'm offering that work for me, and I hope you can work for in your own life, and that's what I wanted to, to, you know, to really give to people, that that, that that tools can bring to their own life. They can bring the tools that actually can bring them to the certain state of mind, who can change the, themselves, and that and this, in that way also the, the, you know, the world. Okay. It's a, you know, I, I tell you a remember Boltanski story I told you? I don't know if I Go told on, you that. Re- remind, remind us. Boltanski, you know, is a French artist and he worked always with childhood and, you know, the images. And I remember a long time ago, like 30 years ago, he, he, he was, always, you know, he will, he will keep his napkins when he was three years old or the little socks or, you know, things like that. And there was a big show of him in Venice Biennale. And uh, I was there just listening to his interview. I was young. And there was a little vitrine with his little napkin and the little socks and the little cap. But he was, I don't know, two years or something. And the journalist, kind of very confused, asked, and what do you like to tell him with this work? And the, he was very serious and looked at them and said, of course, to change the world. So, so we all want to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the way the questions work uh, in, in this space is that if you're on, uh, in the stools, so to speak, there are two people, I think, with microphones who will bring the microphones to you. Yes, there. But if you're in the two gallery spaces, it's much more fun for you, frankly, that there is a microphone in each corner where I'm pointing, I think, just there, and you have to walk to the microphone and then address it, which I think is more fun, more theatrical. Um, um, and would anybody like to ask Marina a question about the Serpentine Show 500? But also not to ask the, the question, to tell their own experience, which yeah. is to me even more valuable. Yeah. Tell, tell Marina your experience, that's a very good point. The gentleman there, I think. Um, I'm very, uh, thank you, firstly, for the, uh, for the show. Um, I, I'm curious about how you see your relationship with the rest of the art world. Uh, you talked about earlier this evening about immaterial, um, and yet arguably the art world now is more material than ever. Do you see yourself in the art world? Do you see yourself almost fighting against what much of the art world represents? Or do you, as I think you were suggesting earlier, see yourself almost outside the art world doing something very different uh, around, for example, what you were describing uh, consciousness? 
But you know, I have to say that I work in the context of art world. So I am artist working from that context. But you know, thinking about historically, there is a lots of immaterial work from different artists which I really love and I, 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 is, is a kind of you know, family for me. And I think they're part of art world too. Like one will be, I don't know, James C. Byers, another will be Eve Klein, Gino de Domenici's. They're really incredible artists who really work with the materiality in their own way and it was so difficult. I, I just give you the example of uh, Eve Klein, the very important Eve Klein piece made in 1956 when he, on the, on the bridge of the Seine, give to, he sold to the collector um, the, yeah. the artist's sensibility. He said to him, he does sit standing on the bridge of Seine, and I said, I'm selling you my artist's sensibility, which is how you, know, how you can do this. And the, the collector said, how much? And he said the certain number, and collector take the check, write the check, and give to him. The, if client take the match and burn the check, and all the ashes go to the river. And that's, you see, nothing happened there, but historically such important thing is a mental transaction. Or this incredible piece of uh, Gino de Dominicis, who actually, you know, he, he was a very interesting artist who died in his suicide, I don't know, 10 years ago in Rome. And this piece he made um, that he actually, he sold to the collector invisible piece. And uh, fine. The collector, it was a bar, it was yeah, late yeah, night, yeah. the collector was maybe, maybe you know, f- sorry for the artist who doesn't have no money, and, you know, he'd say how much, and he'd give one sum. And he gave him a really nice check, and of course he didn't burn this time. He went and cashed next morning, and collector, <laughs> for, collector forgot all about. But three weeks later, there was a telephone call of the very respectful uh, the transport company who uh, told the collector they have invisible piece to deliver in his home. <laughs> And then he would say, oh, my God, really interesting. So there was things joke. He said, okay, next Wednesday, 10 o'clock. Next Wednesday, 10 o'clock, the truck arrived. The six guys, gray suits, white gloves, very proper, you know, carrying the invisible piece. They bring to the home. And, and they ask where we should, we should put. And the guys say, I don't know, next to the window. No, 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 very sensitive to light. <laughs> so so, so they, put it, they put it in the corner. And end of the story. But four years ago, there's a big after he died, big retrospective of his work in Rome, and I went to see it, and I almost stopped, stepped on the invisible piece because the collector borrowed invisible piece to the show, <laughs> and is it just a piece of tape around the white space? But you see, when you talk about these things, it looks funny, but at the same time, we are talking about immateriality, you know, energy. The performance is about energy, and it's about transmission of energy. And you can't describe, you can't touch it, you can't hang on the wall, but you can feel it. And this is the energy we're talking about. And this is still in a frame of art. That's how I see it. But that's what, just, just a gentleman's point. That's quite an interesting. Those, those stories were both great, but they were both involved the exchange of money, which was your point, I think. This, this, the whole thing has become very materialistic. Okay, my other stories doesn't involve the money. <laughs> <laughs> they're great stories, but it was quite just interesting to observe that you both involved the transaction. One is burn the check, okay, this is really destruction, and the other one, you know, it was survival. Yeah. Then that's true. Yeah. Then, okay. Um, next? Yes, gentleman here in the orange T-shirt. I think there's a microphone just coming to you. Can I just have a quick show of hands who, who would like to ask a question, so I get a sense of... And up in the up in the galleries. Oh, just somebody. Okay. If, you're in the, if you want to answer a question in the galleries, if you could just make your way to the microphone now, then we'll pick over there. I think we'll pick you up in a minute. Yeah. Okay. The gentleman here. Sorry. Hi, Marina. Um, I went to the five hundred. Oh, 
Does it work? Well, I was looking at that. I went to the 512 hours, and it was an amazing experience. The experience was mind-blowing. You just can't express it in words. And just... Why? Tell me for you, what, what was really for you important? What you took out of this for you? I really need to know. I, and just being there, feeling everyone's sadness and happiness just felt like ch- changing your life, like not using so much technology and, and just slowing down your life. What is your age? Four, 14, and I'm... Oh, my God, I love this. <laughs> this is... This, you see, it's for me... And, Marina, yeah. I last night written a letter for you. Could I please give it to you? Of course. Yeah, now, give to me, now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, read it. No, read it, read it. No, read it. Read. You want to read? Uh, it's 11 pages. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what? What's the problem? We are long duration here. <laughs> we are long duration. Yeah. What is the thing? Yeah. Sure. Come, baby. You're 14. <laughs> I will read later, it looks like. Later. <laughs> Thank you, baby. Thank you. Thank you. Good man, Thank lovely. You. I know, I it's know very, got... very protected. It's like completely closed with the, with the staples. I will read later. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I wanted to take one from the gallery. You, you, you've got a hand there. You've come down from the gallery. Is there not one in the corner? Oh, oh, well, you've been very good. Yeah, excellent. So I just wanted to ask you, Marina, I, I, I didn't get to your show, but I, I'd love to know whether you use your art as a tool. Sorry, I'm over here. Yeah, Hello. It's so in much, the corner by the exit. Yeah, because there's so much light. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm here. I, I just wanted to, to ask you um, whether you use your art tools as a sort of form of placebo, um, sort of healing, a sort of ritualistic sort of healing, so that people self-heal by being part of your art tools and embracing that, and um, you're sort of facilitating them to you know, I use think that, that as a form of placebo. You know, I, I didn't really realize this before, but more and more I feel that there's this kind of aspect is also part of it. It's not only, but it's this kind of aspect. Already in a house, an artist is present. I have this, you know, something happened to me there already in the performance and continue to happening when I perform and when I'm there with the public. I, I have this, I, I can't explain, but this unbelievable opening of my heart that is like almost painfully giving love unconditionally to total strangers. And that is something that people really could feel and they kind of get open to me. 
you know, and this is the healing, that, that kind of emotions, because we are so, in many ways, selfish and so kind of shy and self-conscious, and, and, we, don't, and we don't look in each other's eyes, and we don't hold each other, and we don't, you know, share things. And so the society is more and more alienating these feelings. So when you have that possibility, people really go for it, and I think we need it. We need it so badly, that outburst of pure emotions, and I, I know when I have, you know, one critic in, in, uh, in New York, we, he's a friend of mine, and he said, I hate your work. I hate it so much. I said, why? He said, always makes me cry. I can't stand it. <laughs> because, because, you know, we are, we are so used to take everything intellectually and every art have to be explanation and you understand it, theoretical level. But my work has to hit you in the stomach. It has to be something very pure. And then you think about it, what happened. But that feeling has to be there. And I really, that heals too, you know, that they have to have that emotions are so important. The people cry, you know, cry is, it's so important to cry because otherwise you hold all that inside of you, but just kind of get it out. I, I received one email, but I mean, I mean the letter from somebody saying that he came many times to Serpentine and he had a cancer and then after one month he went to check the doctor and he doesn't have cancer anymore. I mean, this is too much. This is, <laughs> we are, some placebo. We are, wow. we are, we are yeah. turning to Lourdes. That's yeah. no... It's like, but, but it was like, you know... But Marina, you said about the show that it was, it, it was a risk. It was, and and risk, risks can, can fail. And it's really to, to the, that lady's question. Have you ever made a piece which involved interacting with the public, where, it, it, in your own terms, it's failed? I didn't... Interacting with the public this way, this is like, you know, the, my last maybe 15 years, and it's different, but before, I would make the pieces for the public, and I don't... I never, I never tried the piece, because performance, you don't try. This is not a theatre. And mm. if you try, you'll never do it, because you understand how difficult it is. So you just do it when public is there, and that's it. And I was, I was performing one piece... I don't tell you the name, but never mind. I was performing one piece, and, was, and in the middle of it, in the middle of it, I understood this is so bad. Oh, my God, this is the worst thing I've ever done. And I couldn't stop. Public is there. I am there, so I can tell them now, sorry, forget, this is really bad. So I, I went through the whole thing. It was terrible. I had a temperature that evening. I was sick. I was physically was, what was so sick. What was wrong about the, co- the everything. concept? It was, just everything was wrong. It was like, you know, I was presuming something would work and, and just didn't. And there's, and there's you didn't feel it, or? It's, it's like it was it was artificial. I I wanted too much from the things. I was I, it was not not my own. I didn't put enough my feelings. You know the moment. This is the old thing. The most the mo, the biggest fear I had about this piece. It was not about the public. The biggest fear I had was about me. Mm. That in the process I will stop the belief that this is possible. The moment I stopped to believe it's possible, everything fails mm. because you can feel from me. But that was the most important. This was the most scary me because I was dealing with something I, I you know, I, I, I could not touch. Mm. That we, we arriving all these people in the space and something is happening that is invisible but touch everybody. Mm. And if I trust that, if I don't, if I don't trust it will happen every time, then we are. It's Anything other than total commitment. That would be a really, you know, disaster. everybody feel. You know, the, the public is incredibly sensitive. When you're in the front of the public and you're performing, you can stand in the front of the public and perform. But in your mind, you can be in Honolulu or wherever, whatever, Hong Kong, I don't know where. Public know that. But mm. if your mind and the body is in the place at the same time and that energy dialogue, energy dialogue is happening, then it's real. And the same with public. You have to take that attention and then it's... 
you know, it's, it's the chemistry between two. It's not just one way. How, how do you prepare ways. to get yourself into that mental and physical state? A lot. <laughs> you know, my, a little bit of story of my life. With, you know, living with Aborigine one year in the in west of Lake of Disappointment because there was never water there. Um, going to Shamans in Australia, in, in, sorry, in Brazil. Look, you know, study. In so you bring Asia, all that history. Forest, everything. I was interested in everything but where you can rationally explain what's going on with the body and mind. To understand the other sides, really. Like study Tuma exercise. Tuma exercise is a wonderful Tibetan exercise when you can visualize fire in your solar plexus and you sit. Fire? Yeah, uh-huh. and you sit naked in the snow, on, I don't know, minus 20 degrees, and you can rise the temperature any part of your body. The monks doing, the Tibetan monks doing for fun, they put the, the students bring the towels, wet towels, absolutely ice cold, they put on their shoulders to the masters, and masters dry the towel, just steams comes up. Mm-hmm. We can do these things. We, we, we just use technology for everything. We are invalids because technology mm-hmm. replaces all our, our abilities. Mm-hmm. Telepathy is so much cheaper than telephone. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> has, has somebody up on the upper tier got to the microphone and got a question? There you go, sir. Far away. Is it on? Yeah. Um, you just sort of touched on it just talking. Now, I spend quite a lot, lot of time in Burma. Um, and where the monks obviously do a lot of meditation, and there are many benefits from meditating. Um, I was just wondering whether you see many similarities between what you do and meditation and the benefits of it. Yeah, you know, I, what I've been doing in these 40 years of my career, I went everywhere to learn things, and meditation is very important. Like, uh, the slow walk is nothing but vipassana meditation, it practices, as you know, the monks doing for centuries. It's not something new. I just make my own uh, the kind of mixture of the things that I think will work in, in our world. And I call them Abramovich method, but they're based on the ancient techniques. And most of these techniques are based on, 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 the, on meditation. I mean, this is very simple. I just want to give a really important example mm. of, the rice, of the rice counting. So... The rice counting, again, you, you have to decide how much of you to divide lentils and rice. Are you wanted to count, just divide them and that's it, or you want to count just lentils, or you want to count rice, or small amount, or big amount, and then stick to it. It's like life. You, you decide something and go for it. And just don't give up too soon. Or you say, I will do it everything, and you can't because it takes too long. So that's a really important approach. And in this process, you learn so much about yourself and willpower and, and so on. But one thing about the very old, again, Tibetan exercise is they, they i done only half of it, but it really was very important to me. There are little molds, like, you know, like you're making the, the imprints in the sand, like you're making children cakes. You know, you take the little cup and then you make the, in the sand the cake and you put it outside mm-hmm. on the beach. So they make little molds with the Buddha image. And then you have a huge pile of clay. So the monk gave you this exercise that you have to take these little molds of the clay, press in the clay, put it out, and then you have this, you have to do it one million, one hundred, one thousand, one of these little Buddha cakes. That takes three months. A solid seven to eight hours work. You've done half solid. of this, yeah? You did 500,000. No, no, I've done the whole thing. Ah. So I've done the whole thing. When I finished this whole thing, they told me, now it's you in big danger. I said, why? Because you are attached to result. You are so proud of result. Look all these things you've done. And this is called spiritual materialism. 
So now you have to get rid of spiritual materialism. But at the same time, my visa expires, so I have to go back. <laughs> so, but to give, up, to give up spiritual materialism, it's another interesting exercise. You have to have same mold sitting on the running water, and you do it in the water. Ah, one million, one hundred thousand, one, so that you don't see result. Because the result is another danger. We ha- it's not about result, it's about process. That's all about what it is. I'm and performance is about process. And, the, and experience is the process. And you're going through hell to the high level of the experience and then low again, and you never know. And it's difficult and it's demanding, but it's incredibly rewarding when you come to the end, you know, to come to the end of something that you, you say, I'm going to do it. And, it. and mind is very tricky things. Mind will stop you and say, this is bullshit. What am I doing? Counting this rice for her? Oh, she's crazy. I'm walking slow or I'm standing on this platform. That's what mind does. But you say, okay, let's go for it. Let's see, let's have this experiment. Let's see what will happen. And then you reach something else. Then is the step to another reality. How, how, uh, why have you made both uh, you, uh, a physical challenge and long duration such a central part of your work? <sighs> because I realize the long duration is essential. Long duration is absolutely essential. essential. Because not just the performer need time to get to that state of mind. The public need the same time. Uh It's like everything, our our life is, we have such a small uh, spend of attention. Look at the kids, what they're doing with TV programs. Anybody follow one TV program from beginning to the end? You're just changing the channels all the time. Look at how we are doing with the text messages, what we're doing with computers. Everything is so... We are fast, fast, fast. Nobody read the book. Everybody's looking, you know, into the computer to get the, you know, the, uh, how you call it, Wikipedia, Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia. You know, so every information is like that. It's all scattered. It's all past. It's all partial. Nothing is really complete. And uh, and long durational is the thing that you're doing the same thing over and over again. If you take simple exercise, which I'm doing, you know, in my workshop with the students, like you just take the door. You take the, you know, you, everybody have the door in the house, and you take this door. And you open it very slowly. But you don't enter and you don't exit. You just have action of opening, slow as possible. If you open the five times, it's one thing. But if you open 15 minutes, two minutes. But if you open this door and close in three hours, this door is not the door anymore. The door is the space. The door is this, the universe. The door is everything. So that, that actually simple repetition exercise transports you into another mm-hmm. state. And this is the, how the, all the old cultures are functioning. That's why ceremonies of originalists are exactly the same for 30,000 years, never change, exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. That is the power of repetition. Mm-hmm. Okay, another question. Um, gentleman just down here. I'm not a gentleman. Oh, so I'm difficult. No, it's, it's okay. Marina and I, it's a lot of likes. It's, it's gorgeous yeah. woman. Sorry. Um, Marina, I, I didn't attend the, the exhibition, and I'm very sorry about that because I feel it has been fascinating or was fascinating. But my question is, um, you seem to rely a lot in your work, for what I heard anyway, on silence. And we're here in the um, Royal College of Music. And um, I just wanted to ask you a question about sound. And I think a lot of our mind and our experience and our energy can be expressed in sound as well, in my opinion anyway. I just want to hear your opinion about sound, and maybe sometime you will use that in your work. You know, I always, I always said that, uh, you know, we, we create invisible pyramid, you know, like kind of in our mind of the hierarchy of art. 
I will put the sound on the top, absolutely the music on the top, because mm-hmm. the music is absolutely the most immaterial form of art that exists. It's that you don't need object between receiver and the, the one who is doing it. It's just direct, direct, direct energy dialogue, and incredibly important because it goes through your body right away. And there is so many, you know, cultures that understand that, and you know, like the, just the simple Tibetan bowls, you know, they they have healing property because the Tibetan bowls are made from the nine different metals. Each metal creates one vibration, so that and they can create, you know, this certain impact on your nervous system, and you can really work with sound in such amazing ways. I think sound is absolutely important. A part of this, you know, in my institute also, we are very much connected to young scientists. And like in this mutual gaze in Artists is Present, we, uh, you know, I, I've been kind of interested, everybody got interested in me, the American scientists and Russian, because I was the best guinea pig. Nobody sit, you know, three months motionless on the chair just to experiment, but I was doing that. So they put the AG caps and, and really the, the measure my brain waves and to see what is happening on the, on the scientific level. Can we show the movie in just a few minutes? Sure, of course okay. we can. Okay, can we show the... the our scientific experiment, because I think science, it's important, because, you know, spiritually things happen, but if science doesn't prove, we don't believe it. But science is actually catching up. It's evidence. So we have proofs. Initially, what Marina wanted was to do a study where she could get insight into her own experience through brain visualization. That led to measuring the magic of mutual gaze. So what we did is to really create an experiment room. What we ended up with was two rotating brains pulsating at frequencies that was most dominant in each person's brain. At moments of synchrony, you saw these lightning bolts kind of connecting the two. There's research on what happens to one brain when uh, somebody's looking you straight in the eye, but there's very little, if not no research, on what happens to the interaction of brain activity between two people as they are engaging in mutual gaze together. The compatibility racer is basically a car that is fueled by how similar the brain responses of the two people inside are. Two people are sitting inside of the compatibility racer, they're facing each other, they're wearing EEG headsets, measuring uh, their brain responses, they're moving in the same way or doing anything that might feel like they're clicking with each other or communicating in some way or another. And depending on how successful that communication is, that fuels the car. So in essence, the compatibility the ability racer is uh, an actual experience of how the brain facilitates communication. Anyone can ride the compatibility racer and sort of understand that feeling of clicking with someone and how that translates into the speed at which you're traveling, which immediately makes the brain accessible. The mutual wave machine developed sort of in parallel to the compatibility racer. There was overlap. So this is an installation that is in a completely dark uh, environment, right? And the only light source is the visualization on the machine. And then as synchrony increases, you see the, the, the machine kind of fills up with light slowly and these white noise patterns. And as this happens, you then clearly see that what you're actually looking at behind the noise is a real-time video image of yourself. So when you have perfect synchrony, you are looking and you're clearly seeing the other person that you're looking at, um, you're also seeing a mirror image of yourself. 
It's both science and it's art, and it answers questions that are of interest to both and to the intersection of the two. The National Science Foundation and uh, foundations of different countries are interested in these types of projects and in pursuing it into explorations of taking neuroscience out of the lab into real-world environments. And we also have this immaterial magazine, which we talk with the young artists, scientists, different generations. And really, please go to the website. That would be great. You have amazing stuff, Marina. Um, no. But that is very much cutting-edge 21st century stuff. Your career started <laughs> in the 20th century. You were born, what, 1946 in Serbia. And you said you, six or seven, you were a painter. And you had your first exhibition when you were 12. Child is a monster. Child is a monster. And your parents were, were, were you, it's a strange upbringing. Your dad was a, what is he, a general in the, in the army, in Tito's army? And, and your mother was, uh, you, didn't, you, you didn't like her, right? Major. She was a major. And she was a major pain in the ass as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> no comments, but she's dead. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, so any comment? What is the question? The question... <laughs> well, this is a bit of background for people to know, really. But, but, but your, it seems to me that that relationship you had specifically... I mean, your parents were intellectuals, really, and you grew up at a strange time in the sort of history of Europe. And, and, and you had a very strange relationship with your parents, most specifically your mother, because they divorced. And, that, and I suppose to get a sense, just going way back, how that all that informed your decision to become an artist and then to find performance as a way to express yourself? Wow. So the theory, my theory generally is like this. The more fucked up childhood you have, the better <laughs> artist you become because you have material to work. <laughs> you have so much more material to work with. And, uh, and these stories are full of you know, bad, bad childhoods around. So, you know, in, in, from many points of view, I had actually good childhood because I came from privileged background, you know, everybody was, you know, we was not poor, we was actually like, you know, red communist rich in a way. I had the piano lessons, I had the English teacher, a French teacher, I had, the, you know, I, we had the maid at home and all these things, you know, which... Very bourgeois. Which very, very bourgeois because communists are bourgeois. And, uh, only, and, you know, all these things. But at the same time, I didn't have love, and I was very You didn't lonely. have love? No. no. My mother never kissed me in my life. And once I asked her, but why you never kissed me? I was 35. She said to me, she said to me, what? I mean, I don't want to spoil you, of course. I mean, it was totally normal. And she said, my mother never kissed me either. So this goes generational, you know. And, and really crippled me so much. But at the same time, as you see now, I... I uh, generate all this love to, to, mm. to everything else, you know, I'm doing. And this is, you know, my public become, my and how, family. How did your parents respond to your idea in, in what was a conservative, communist environment that you were going to become an artist? But, you know, my mother was in the beginning very supportive because, first of all, she was art historian. She ran Museum of Art and Revolution, which was horror for mm. me because it was like, a, you know, partisans around the fire next to the tanks and, and the Kalashnikovs. So that was the museum. And then, you know, she could take modern art not, not after Warhol. Warhol was already a scandal for her. 
And in the beginning, I was a painter and I was young and I was painting my dreams and I'm painting flowers and I'm painting all this stuff. I used to, for the old relatives, paint these horrible flower paintings just to give me money. And then I was, and I was always signing huge, like I'm so ashamed of this now. I was signing, I was always looking Picasso signs, so big Picasso. So I was signing with blue paint, Marina. And, and my mother actually later on in her age, she bought all these paintings back. And uh, she have them because she thinks that was the only time when I was a real artist. <laughs> so now I really think, and now I have them, and I've, I'm thinking of burning them seriously because that's really bad. But but a part of this, it's um, it was really it, it was it was hard. It was very hard to the the moment when I understood that I don't want to paint anymore. That when I, the all hell starts. When I was so painting, what, what, even in my studio, I was. What I was, triggered that decision? Is this really beautiful little incident that I was, um, you know, painting? In that time, I was painting clouds, and I have this whole different series of clouds. Clouds who are coming, projections, black holes, clouds who are attacking the human beings, whatever. So I was always looking to clouds. And I rem- remember lying on the field in, 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 the, in the park, and I look up the sky, and there was no one cloud in the sky, just blue sky. And I was just waiting for cloud. And then out of nowhere came, you know, 11 military planes like this high, you know, the Urtasonic, and they just made a boom and made this incredible drawing in the sky, which is amazing. I just look this drawing and how this drawing was formed and how this appeared and how the blue sky stays there. And this was like almost spiritual revelation for me. I stood up and I said, I don't want to go back to the studio and make something two-dimensional. Well, I can use everything. I can use aeroplanes, I can use fire, I can use the water, I can use the body, I can use anything. So I went straight to military base and asked for this, you know, 11 military planes if I can make the drawing. And they called my father, you know, and they say, your daughter, get her out of here, she's crazy. You know how much cost to do that? So this was project not realized. Then I have this... Then I got another idea, it was even more better. So I was thinking, okay... If I put the sound, the big speakers on the bridge, in the main bridge of the, in Belgrade, with the sound of bridge falling down. So you're on the bridge, and your wet sound, bridge stop existing, but visually the bridge is still there. So I have to, of course, ask you know, City Hall for permission. So I went there, and they told me, architects, they say, but you know what, with the sound, bridge really can fall. So it was no. So there was another no, no. And so, and then I made it in my own building, but it was very short living because everybody ran out thinking they're the bombing. So there was not really, really out. But now, which is interesting now, talking about Listen Show again, because it's early work. It's early days. Yeah. It's that I have this piece called Free in the Horizon because I was so suffocated. I want to have a fry free horizon. So I had this old postcards of Belgrade, which I was just painting buildings away, way, way, way. And there was just kind of just plain white horizon standing, and I could, you know, breathe again. It was, you know, virtual. And, uh, and then, 30 years later, the, the belt was bombed, and some of these buildings really don't exist. So it was mm. like almost voodoo mm. in a certain yeah. way. And then I have another sound installation. We was having this student cultural center. We would just go there, you know, to wait for the, to go to the cinema. And it was easy go. to be an avant-garde artist at the time. It was beautiful. It was good days, actually. Good days? Yeah. Because yeah. something no, to push against? You know, it was just different. It was nothing to do with money. You don't even think that you'll ever live from this, what you're uh-huh. doing. But then, you know, that piece called Aeroport I like because that was this big hall that we drink coffee all day long and, you know, go to theater, do things, discuss about art and everything else. And, and then I put this sound, very sexy, cold voice saying, you know, the, all the passengers of the Yugoslav airline yacht 
can go immediately to gate 343. But we had only three gates, but I like this kind of ritual. 343, the, the plane is leaving to, to Hong Kong, Honolulu, and Bangkok or something like that. And then every three minutes you have this incredible passengers immaterial going to this trip. It was never going to happen because we didn't have money. We could not leave. But with the sound, talking about sound, you actually can do, you know, you can go anything. So all these unrealized projects, you see, and then I have to leave. You have to leave? (laughs) (laughs) Because you you, you can't grow there or you've been told to leave? No, I, it was a huge conflict with the mother, with my things. You know, it was uh, why I have to leave. You know, then I um, actually done lots of performance work in, in those days in ex Yugoslavia, and then the, the there was a lit, the gallery of the museum, but it was you know they decided to show some of my photographs, and I made a show. But my mother, I always have to come back ten o'clock in the night, <laughs> even if I was twenty nine. So I I have to I um, I have made all my my performances before 10 in the evenings because 10 I have to be home. So there was a big opening and, uh, and everybody was you know, celebrating my opening, went to the dinner, but b- before 10 I come home. So I come home and it's darkness. Oh my God, this is fine, you know, everything is okay. And uh, I open the, 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 the dining room and I see my mother sitting full. She always had a double breast suit, very much Margaret Thatcher, that's exactly <laughs> like, and with the big brush here. And she completely in the dark. And in the meantime, somebody called her from the museum and said, your daughter is hanging naked on the wall. This was it. <laughs> she was waiting for me to kill me. <laughs> that was the story. And then, you know, I, I came and she looked at me, you know, when I put the light on, and she took this ashtray, this huge crystal ashtray <laughs> from the unhappy marriage, whatever, it was all mess. It was standing on the wall. It was really ugly in the kitchen. She took this ashtray, and there was this wonderful Taras Bulba, you know, the, the text from the Russian writer, saying, saying she, she just used the sita, she said, I give you the life and I'm going to take you. So she takes this ashtray and throw on <laughs> my head. So the ashtray is flying on my head and I'm thinking, or towards my head, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to move the head. She's going to splash my brain on the wall, but she's going to prison, she's going to suffer, she's going to... <laughs> and then I move, and then I left Yugoslavia. <laughs> Very good. Fantastic. Oh. Um. <laughs> Thank you. Uh. Yeah. Just to spin through, Marina leaves Yugoslavia, she comes to the Edinburgh Festival, actually, in 71, I think, then becomes a postman in Britain. Can you believe that? Marina Abramovich, a postman. Oh, can I tell the postman story? Yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> so, so now, I'm out of Yugoslavia with a group of Serbian artists. We don't have penny, we don't have anything, I have to do some jobs. So the friends of mine say to me, but there is this job, you can just deliver the post in the night. So they give me a really ugly British post uniform, too small, little short skirt, you know, how it is. <laughs> so I'm going to, I hardly speak English, and it was so complicated, all the streets that I have to go out to find out. So I work for almost like months, and three in the morning I'm still delivering the post, you know, putting it on. So then I, I, one day I was so tired, and I make this very radical decision. And I say, this was, you know, not, not computer time, this was, you know, the typewriter machine. So I said, every letter who is a typewriter, must be bills, some ugly news, and something, you know, something from the government. I just throw it away. <laughs> and, and everything was written by hand. It's a love, it's emotional, it's a family. I deliver. And then I was doing like this for three weeks, and that was a mess, but nobody could prove anything except ask me to return the post uniform back. So, and was, that's the postman. It's a great story. I wanted to ask you about a, a, a specific work, Marina, because it is just so extraordinary in its, 
its concept and its delivery. I mean, a lot of your earlier works, less so now, a lot of your early, early works were put you in a vulnerable position. They're also sort of quite violent, involved cutting yourself and uh, endangering yourself, but nothing quite like Rhythmo. And I just wanted to understand really why you wanted to make Rhythmo at that point in your career and, and what it did and, and how it affected what you did thereafter. So can you explain to the public Rhythmo? No, you're the artist. But come on, do something. I, <laughs> 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 I've been talking so much. Explain and I, I tell you why. Okay, Rhythmo is Good. a work that uh, Marina did in 74. Exactly. And uh, it involved her standing on a stage, not dissimilar to this, with a table. No stage, just the gallery. Oh, here we go, you see. No, no, this just a small detail. That's all. So it's a gallery, table. Stage means theatre. We're not going stage. Okay. There's a table with, I think, 72 objects on it of varying types. Yes. There's some flowers, there's some silk. There's a gun, there's a bullet, there's a knife. These things are all laying out on the table. Marina is then standing, I think, at this stage by the table, an audience just like there is here. Um, I think standing as well, um, and then other other. I think the work is um, tr triggered by Marina asking for people to interact with everything they see about her, and 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 that's that. That's how it starts, and it's, and and people began quite politely, maybe to come and touch your shoulder, or they pick up an object, and I think maybe somebody brushed a brushed you with a rose or something like that, and then over a period of time it developed into something much, much darker. Oh, okay, small detail. I didn't tell to anybody anything. It was just uh, like a menu on the table saying, I'm an object, do whatever you want no. with me, and I'm taking all responsibility, including killing me. That's a big detail. <laughs> One bullet only. So, and the pistol. You have to put the bullet into the pistol. But you also have the things to, 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 for pleasure. You don't need to use aggressive things. So I had both ways, you know, pleasure and, and pain. But this experience, this was, we are talking 74. Which country did you first talk to? Naples, Italy. Mm -hmm. I was so angry. <laughs> I, was so, God. I was so angry on the, on the art scene. You know, being performance artist in the 70s was a very hard thing yeah. to do. And the public was constantly, you know, criticizing us that we are masochists, that, that we are sadists, that we're just about the pain, that it's all ridiculous. And they're calling this... You know, there was no art. There could not be anything to do with art. So this performance for me was designed. What if I'm doing nothing at all? What I'm just motionless with all the objects there as a possibility and see what public can do. What is responsibility to public, to the performance artist? And on the end of that story, I knew the public can kill me. And this was a really very strong experience because the public in the beginning, again, was long durational because I took six hours. Six hours is a very important time because in the beginning, public was playing. They give you, you know, they come your hair, they give you rose. Then they come somebody and cut your, your clothes and take the rose and put the pins in your body. Then they take the, the, the knife and still have the scar. They cut me here and drink my blood. Then the one put the cotton and start lifting the cigarette. Then another one put the water on you. Then another one... People are holding me and putting me on the table and open my legs and put a knife in between. And you're naked at this stage? Uh, yes. Yeah. And, then, and then the interesting thing is a normal public who come to the normal opening. And was the most interesting thing that, <coughs> that what they project in Italy on me, imagery, was Madonna, mother, and the whore. Mm. There was the three images. Mm. And the only way I was not raped there because 
they came with their wives. So and the, and then and then there's another interesting thing was that actually women was telling the men what to do and they never did. They would take my tears away with the handkerchiefs very elegantly. So the when the six hours, huh? the women were more aggressive. No, they were just telling men what to do. Uh-huh. And then and then was very interesting another story that on the six hours was finished. You know, I was full of blood. I was like half naked. It was a mess. And then the gallery said to me, six hours is is, is finished. I start walking towards the public because whatever they do with me, I accept it. You put my hand, I stay in this position, always facing one point. And just to be absolute object and to see how far they can go. And of course, with the, including killing, somebody put the bullet in the pistol, give me the pistol and open the trigger and see if, you know, how I react. I didn't react. And then he started pulling slowly my hand. And then the other person came, lost his nerves, started fight. It was in the, the, the bullet went to the floor, things like that. And then finally, after six hours, the, the others came and said, this is over time. So that my time of performance is over. So I started walking towards the public. They just ran away. Literally, they all ran away. It was incredible. I was just alone. And I remember it was, it was, it was, it was like two in the morning. And I go to the hotel and I look myself in the mirror and I had a big piece of gray hair. Since then I painted. I don't like gray hair. <laughs> you got rid of it. Why did you want to make rhythm, rhythm mode? What did you want to... Just to show that actually it's not, it's not, it's the public can kill you. That's right. to see that, that actually... And you see how interesting the rhythm zero is about that, the yeah. negativity part of the public. But then I made artists present where I completely create positive... Does everybody know about Artists is Present, the show that Marina did in um, okay. Manhattan uh, Museum of Modern Art, where uh, in t- 2010 she sat at a table in the big atrium there um, in a rather elegant dress um, on a Seven, chair. 716 hours, this one. Yeah, exactly. And, on, and, and there was another chair with nobody in it on the other side. And uh, Marina sat there all day, every day, for nearly three months. And people could come and... And, uh, and sit there, and they couldn't interact. I smile or laugh or talk. We just they'd sit there and commune, really. And, and I'd spoken to the people at MoMA before the show, and nobody thought, knew. It was the first, first time, actually, a performance retrospective had been held. Nobody knew how it was going to go, but expectations were unbelievably low. Um, and uh, they were, weren't they? Uh, and it turned out to be one of the most successful shows that's ever been held at MoMA. Eight hundred fifty thousand people. But what is nearly a million people? Okay. But what is incredible in this piece? It was that I understood that it's so easy to put human spirit down, and what we have to so do. So easy to do. To put spirit, the spirit, the human spirit down. Mm-hmm. It's about how we can create, how we can change that, how we can put human spirit up. Uh-huh. So, like this serpentine piece, like that moment show, it was about that. And you know, you you yes, you can put the knife, you can put the, you can put the, the the pistols. You 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 take you actually uh, wake up the wars. But what mm. if you if you don't? What if you just uh, ask them to slow walk? Mm. That's different. Or headphones. So I I'm not into this. I, it was a process for me that I needed to do all these very radical, very difficult, painful pieces to get to that point. I, every work is actually leading me to to this piece of serpentine. Who's got a question for Marina? Lots of people, sorry. Um, this lady here with the black top on. I'm up in the gallery, so have you got questions as well? We'll come to you next. Okay, thank you very much for pointing that out. Hi. Um, I came to your 512 hours, and I thought it was amazing, so thank you for that. Um, I had a great experience. found it really interesting to look at other people rather than 
at yourself, but a lot of people didn't enjoy making eye contact or seeing other people, um, especially during the walking. They were really involved in themselves, which I found really interesting. Uh, but my question to you mainly is, um, you seem to have focused a lot on specific time lengths. Um, you mentioned the six hours that you spent, the 716 hours and the 512 hours that you titled your piece here. And I was wondering what these times signify to you and why you chose them in particular. It's very simple. It's given to me that time, you know, like the museum show in, uh, in MoMA, it's longer than Serpentine. And that was 716 hours here. The, that I don't know how many weeks was the, the whole thing. So it was 512. So it's exactly the opening time, eight hours. The, the, the Serpentine is open from 10 to 6 every single day. So and they give me the time where the normal show is going to happen. And this counts 512 hours. So this is, you know, based on something which is given to me, nothing else. And, uh, you know, but the part of this, I have to say that, you know, in my life, that always people say, oh, my God, and who are your influences or who are your, like, role models? And there is a, you know, in performance, there is only the person who I really call master that is absolutely nobody ever done anything like this. And I just can, you know, kiss his feet because I'm never even close to this, is uh, Te Ching, is a Taiwanese artist who made uh, five, five years, five, five pieces, and each piece was one year. And that's unbelievable. If, if this is incredible to make radically work, which is one year, one piece, which is like, you know, to, and when I ask him, you know, which is what for me is incredible is that when artists make the work, you know, you make the one work. Why you wanted to make next one? For simple reason that you didn't say everything in this one. And there's always something unsaid that you wanted to continue, continue, to make a different variation of something to get to the point. And this guy made five performances, each one, one year. And when I visit him and I ask him, but what are you doing now? And he said to me, now I'm doing life. And that means that he really changed. You know, the art have the function of changing human being. Of, you know, give, art is there to give oxygen to society. Art, they, art is to predict the future. Art is to, to, you know, open the consciousness. But when artist goes through the, such a strong experience and got to that point, he doesn't need to make work anymore. And this is the only human being I know. And he really is doing life. And this is incredible. I wish I can come to that point. Very good. Thank you. Uh, the lady up here. Don't see. Where's she gone? Hello, Marina. My name is Soraya. I'm from Mexico. Where? We can't see you. Oh, um. Sorry. Hi. Oh, hello. Okay. Yes, Hi there. Very nice to hear you today. I um, watched this documentary many years ago called, called uh, What the Bleep Do You Know? And it's about quantum physics. And it always reminds me of your work. And I wanted to ask you if you like quantum physics and if you believe that in parallel universe and that everything is connected because it just sounds a little bit to me that this is what you're doing. So, thanks. You know, I have a really very strong relation to the, the quantum physics and the string theory and so many other things. I really have a strong connection to the, to the science. But what is very interesting to me, I'm always interested in the kind of connection between spirituality and science. Spirituality have intuitive knowledge. And then science comes and, and, and have the proofs which already happened. I just want to give you this amazing example that I actually witnessed the, in the 80s. There was a symposium uh, in, uh, in Frankfurt in 1984. And symposium was between His Holiness Dalai Lama, between Hopi Indian chief and the NASA representative of the space program. 
And this was an amazing symposium that I was so lucky to present. And what was, this, what was the, the reason? That in Hopi land, and the, 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 the beliefs and in, in the, in the, um, you know, the Tibetan beliefs are that if you take uranium out of the ground, the you know, stratosphere layers are changing. You know, the ozone layer is changing. Things are affecting directly if you take uranium. Also, Aborigines do have the same kind of belief. And, uh, and that is like very old tradition. And then the NASA actually find out with, that actually works. It's true. So, but, you know, we will not believe this before the NASA find the proofs. But intuitive knowledge is stronger than... than we always have to kind of wait for technology to develop or the science to develop. And then another incredible example with, the, with this... Um, the, oh, the, the, God, God, the tribe in, in, uh, in South Africa. What's the name of the tribe? God, tell me... Series? No, Zulu's different one. Oh, my God. What is the name? What were tribes? Tribes in South Africa. Which one? Hosa, which is uh, no, Mandela's no. name. No, Zulu, not. Oh, my God. This is, anyway, a, this is something coming anyway, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tribe in South Africa who worship for hundreds of years the, the, the satellite of Pluto, you know, trans-Pluto, which science absolutely did not exist. And only recently when they build the telescopes enough strong that it can actually exist. Oh, oops, it exists. And these guys are doing ceremonies for years. So, you know, it's really interesting to me that two sides, this immaterial, you know, the kind of intuitive knowledge and science knowledge. And I think the more and more we have to combine these two together to really get into the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I know. What? It feels like about three minutes. No. It really. Okay, come <laughs> on. It's not, it's not yet. It's what is your watch? Okay, okay. It's not 8.30 in Marina's world, which is great. Um, <laughs> My world is like, I don't know. Um, who, who, like, who, look, I've got Hannah Prime with a good... Like, like, one more question then. This, 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 oh, look at them all. I'm so sorry. Let's, um, I'm going to answer very fast. Uh, Let's lady, answer all the questions. The lady... Huh? What? Up at the top. Well, okay, we'll take up at the top and we'll take the lady in the middle. There. With, with, Let's go from the top all the way down. Okay. Okay, up at the top. Far okay. away. Thanks. Uh, my name's Gervais Marina. Um, I where, came with where my. Where are you? I don't see I'm up here, top. right? Oh, yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah, we're in black. I mean, it's <laughs> um, I came on the uh, final day of your show and, and uh, with my friend and waited many hours in the rain um, and then was very pleased to end at, at, at the very end. Um, and as the show ended, I was really struck by uh, the amazing kind of outpouring uh, of emotion of all the people who were there at the end. Um, and really kind of the, the adoration as well towards you. And what I was thinking um, was how... Were you kind of ever concerned that people were kind of coming back and, and coming there out of almost an adoration and a, and a devotion to you as a person and you as a symbol rather than perhaps for the experience itself of it? You know, it's a very important question, this. It's a very mm. important question. This is almost the same example I just give to you, that um, when, you, when you get attached to spiritual materialism and you have to give away, you have to give up. 
it's it's you know I can be like like a kind of a glue to this whole thing or kind of you know you hook on the that experience. But I is not me. It's it's you. You know, and that's another step of the of the experience have to happen. Because, you know, this is why the last days I really melt in. The people come to look for me and I will lie in the bed, I will sit on the chair and I will be just any like anybody else. Because I, I want to prove and actually... This you, was, you withdrew? Yeah, completely. Because actually it was happening. The people was coming there for their own experience and didn't care, you know, the, the, you know where I was. Because that's misleading. It's, I, I just give you the... the, the the, the possibility, but one day, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be there. And it's all about yourself and your experience. And that's really so important because when we're mixing up, we have such a tendency to, to go into this kind of jet set situation with the glamour. You know, they always ask me, you know, but how is my relation to glamour? Because now I can become a kind of pop star. But, you know, I, I, it's a side effect. It doesn't affect me at all because mm. I... I never feel by myself that I'm so important, and I'm available to everybody on every possible level, as you saw it there. You know, I say to everybody hello in, in, the, in the morning and good night in the evening and, and talk to people they want to talk to me. But the thing is, with, with, it's all our society is based on this kind of image. You know, like now you, you're going to, I don't know, shake the hand with Madonna. Who cares? It's, well, it's, it's on the end, you know. Mm. That's that's misleading, and I think in my writings and, and my behavior, I, I really try to to exp, exp, the, the show that I am accessible, and I don't play this game. I never will play this game because it doesn't make this completely wrong way. Last very fast question from the very patient lady there. Um, this is a question on a quite similar note to um, his question. Um, which is, I would like to get your opinion on the statement that celebrities are actually a type of performing artist because they're constantly aware of the actions that they're presenting to the public. <sighs> that wasn't a quick question. You know, you know what is interesting. What to me, if I can, if I can see what is the difference between me and celebrities, because I show all my vulnerability. I never, I, I, I'm full of contradictions. I never say that I am in any way saintly. When you talk about celebrities, if you don't find dirty things, then you, you only see what they're showing to you to see, you know, that kind of glamour part. But then you, everybody's looking for the dirty things, the kind of, oh my God, put her down. But it's very important to, to show every aspect of yourself. All of us are not perfect. All of us have the, so much shit. I mean, including myself. I mean, like, you know, I was on this strict diet you could not believe. I was eating only vegetables to have the most pure energy that I can do this piece. The moment I finished, I ate a box of pralines full of butter and everything. I, I, and I wanted to look some, some really, the, the kind of low-class movie just to clean, you know, just to relax. Because, you know, you, you, the higher you get, the more, the more demand you need for the normality. It's very strange. And, but you have to talk about this and show that things. And I think that's the really what makes you human and makes you real. You know, otherwise it's completely insane. You know what is happening. I, I really think that reality is so important of the, every human being to show. And, and that's why I think people, you know, I'm, I'm vulnerable and accessible to them, and they, that's why they can open to me. They know when I hold their hand, they're not doing it for any kind of special purpose because I really mean it. And also that I don't lie. When I do performances, I do them real. I'm not hiding them. I'm not lying, you know, about it. In the beginning, you know, like in this, I was thinking I will not have lunch. 
And then I had this, I was came with a terrible cold, almost pneumonia. Then I have to start taking antibiotics. Then the doctor said to me, I have to have the, I have to have the food in, in, the, in the middle of the day, otherwise I will not, I, 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 will, I will go to hospital. So I start having food in the middle of the day. Then I, my, my cold was fine. Then I start liking to have this food in the middle of the day. <laughs> then, I, then I say, why well, I have to kill myself because I need this energy to give to people. Then I made a pause one year, one, one, one hour, that I just would have the, 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 the whatever, avocado, or yogurt, whatever shit I had, and I had. And, and, but I also tell this to, the, to, the, my, uh, to everybody who can listen to my diaries. That's true. So I don't, I don't, you know, I always say things as they are. And that's very important. That honesty is very important. And then, then you don't, you know, you don't see that glamour part anymore. It's just this. Di- we are all same, and we are all human beings, and we are all vulnerable, and we are all hurt, and we are all lonely, and we are all sick, and, and, and you know, and I always die somebody in the family. And there's so many pain around this, and, and we have to really, you know, really project some love around here. On that note. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Feels- wow! Wow! wow. And I'm getting in my life here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligentsquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.